0: hebrews chapter 12 verse 26 to chapter 13 verse 4 the 46th talk in a series on the book of hebrews was presented by jack crabtree on july 9 2017 at reformation fellowship the copyright for this recording is held by jack crabtree and is being made available to you by gutenberg college gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 19. Translation. Installment, 2017, number six, accompanies this talk.
1: Okay, we're getting near the end of the book of Hebrews. Um, In order to finish Hebrews, however, we have to take a little bit of a detour first to Haggai, because in the passage coming up, he's going to make an allusion to a prophetic prediction in Haggai. So it'll be best if we understand that before he gets there. I didn't do a lot of looking into this, but I think it's just apparent by reading the book of Haggai that Haggai is prophesying in Judah after the Jews have come back from Babylon, the the remnant has come back from Babylon, and they are living in Judah, uh, supposed to be building a temple. Um, That's what they came back for but they've been paying a lot more attention to their own homes and building their own homes than they have been to building the temple. So the prophet Haggai comes to them and says, on behalf of, or God speaks to them through Haggai saying, hey, what's up? How come you're spending more time on your own homes than on my temple? You, you need to honor me by going to work on my temple. So, um, Zerubbabel is the governor. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He would be a Davidic king if they were allowed to have a king, but they're not allowed to have a king uh, per se, so he's the governor, the the leader of the Jewish people there. Uh, And Joshua, a a man named Joshua, is the high priest at that time. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, is the high priest. So the two of them are basically the leaders of the nation and they uh, bring the, the people together and they obey the word of God and they go to work on the temple and they start building it. That's chapter one. And then we get to chapter two. Uh, do I want to start earlier? No, two, two one is fine. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet saying Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel the governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and to the remnant of the people saying Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory and how do you see it now does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison Now this is important to set the stage for what he's going to go on to say what he's talking about, of course, is Solomon's temple. That is, he's saying who, the, the temple that was there that the Babylonians came and destroyed. And uh, the, the question that's being posed is, are there any of you here who saw the temple that Solomon built in all of its glory? Um, this little modest structure that you've been building is like nothing by comparison, right? It's, it's really modest by comparison. So does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, and this is what he quotes in Hebrews. For, for thus says Yahweh of the hosts, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of the hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of the hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh of the hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares Yahweh of the hosts. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai the prophet, saying, thus says, I'm just just going to say Yahweh from now on, thus says Yahweh, ask now the priests for a ruling, If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares Yahweh. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of Yahweh, from that time when one came to a a heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine, wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares Yahweh. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of Yahweh was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. Then the word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Yahweh, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. And that's the end of Haggai. Okay, so the situation is they're building, rebuilding the temple, but it's a very, very modest attempt and nothing compared to the glorious temple that Solomon had built originally. But the prophetic prediction is, take courage, for thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 6 of chapter 2, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, they translate it once more. It wouldn't have to be translated once more. It's basically yet one time. The exact nuance of that would need to be determined from context and so on. I, because of the way I'm going to understand this, I would translate it something like one last time. In a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. So I, I don't think it's once more. Uh, because he actually has shaken them several times throughout history, but there's one final time that he has in view where he will shake them, and it's going to be in just a little while. Now, what does he mean to shake the heavens and the earth? It's tempting, of course, to think that you, you look at the prophets, and they often talk about an earthquake, and Revelation talks about stars falling from the sky and stars falling like ripe fruit from a tree and all that kind of stuff. It could be that he means this quite literally, but I'm inclined to think not here. The heavens and the earth, we we haven't been there yet, but if we were to go to the book of of Ephesians, Paul uses... The, the heavens and the earth, or the, the earth and the heavens, as a representation of the Jews and the Gentiles. And I'm not exactly sure what the logic of that is. What makes the most sense to me is that if you're on the land of Israel, that's because you are a Jew living on the land that has been given to you. If you live outside the boundaries of the land, the promised land, out under the sky, out there beyond the land, just under the heavens, then you're a Gentile. So the land and the sky and the heavens are the Jews and the Gentiles. And that makes a lot of sense in this context because look at what he says. First of all here, uh, one last time in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land, We know in Revelation, the sea seems to represent the Gentiles. So uh, the dry land may very well represent the Jews. So he repeats it. And then he says, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And as you know, Gentiles is just the Greek word that we translate Gentiles. It's just the Greek word that means nations. So to shake all the nations is to shake the Gentiles. I'll shake those Gentiles and they will come with the wealth of all the Gentiles and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So there are several different clues here that I think what he's talking about is the shaking not just of the Jews, but the shaking of the Gentiles as well. And then if you go down to the last prophecy at the end of chapter 2, Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. Gentiles, again. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. So he seems to be describing a situation where why, why are they in this mess? Because they did not keep the covenant that God made with them while they were in the land. And God, as he had promised through the prophet Moses much earlier, if you do not obey the ordinances and the statutes and the judgments that I am giving you this day, I will kick you out of the land. The land will vomit you out. Or, in different language, I will shake you. And shake is probably not the best way to translate this, uh, not because it can't mean shake, but but just because so many times when the word shake is used, the the focal idea, the primary idea, is not the motion of shaking. The primary idea is making something is bringing something to ruin, destroying it, negating it, nullifying it, wiping it out, and that's what happened to Israel in response to their disobedience of the covenant, God ruined Israel. Well, in this case, Judah. Israel had already been ruined. But he ruined Judah, basically destroyed them as a, as a culture, a people, and a civilization on that land. They, they were no more a viable political entity occupying that land at that point. Any that were left behind at all were a subjugated people. So he shook them at that point. So when he says, one final time in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, now what he has in view is not coming to Israel to shake them again, he will. It includes shaking them again, but it also involves shaking the heavens, the Gentile nations, the Gentile people. And again, shaking is decimating them, so what it sounds like he's talking about is literally a worldwide decimation of all the peoples on the earth, their civilizations, their culture, their economies. He's going to bring everything to nothing. And when we're going through Revelation, it sounds a whole lot like some of the stuff that, that Revelation is talking about. Well, in that day, I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Now, I think what he's comparing is when I shake the nations... And after having shaken the nations, the nations bring all of their wealth to Jerusalem to help with the building of the temple, rebuilding the temple. That temple is going to be more glorious than Solomon's temple, seems to be what he's saying. So that temple will be more glorious than Solomon's temple, the latter more glorious than the former. So I think I've said enough. It seems apparent to me that what he's talking about is a temple that is going to get built after the return of Jesus why do i say after the return of Jesus because the return of Jesus would seem to correspond in the prophetic predictions with the shaking of the land of the of the land and the heavens the dry land and the seas the jews and the gentiles and notice what that implies Israel is not going to survive. The Israel that's being established today is not going to endure. It's going to be shaken too. So it will be wiped out. It will be destroyed. The millennial kingdom that Jesus built builds is going to be starting over on the land. It's not going to be taking what's been built by sinful people, by a sinful nation, and improve on it from there. The the whole idea of the shaking, I think, is to take anything and everything, as we'll see in the Hebrews account, to take anything and everything that is incompatible with God and his purposes and bring it to nothing in order that the only thing that does endure is that which is in keeping with and compatible with God and his purposes. That will survive, but everything else is going to be destroyed. Okay, now a couple obvious objections that we need to answer. Wasn't Herod's temple more glorious than Solomon's temple, arguably? Yeah, it was. So one one might be tempted to see this as a prediction of the building of Herod's temple, where Herod took this modest structure that Haggai is talking about and made it one of the wonders of the ancient world at that time. And he... he went far and wide uh, to the nations to bring in the um, resources of other nations, the Gentile nations, to, and the craftsmanship of other nations, brought them in to build this amazing and magnificent uh, temple. So maybe Haggai is uh, prophesying that. Problem is, the building of Herod's temple doesn't correspond with anything else Haggai is saying here. There was no shaking of the earth and the heavens, neither geographically and literally, nor politically, during the time of the building of Herod's temple. He used the exploitation of his own people and commerce to get what he needed to build the temple. It wasn't warfare. No no Gentile nations were reduced to nothing in order for that to happen. So it, it doesn't really seem to fit the picture that Haggai is is painting here. Seems like I had a second... Well, well, uh, yeah, that's enough. I mean, I I think I had a second point, but I've lost it. But anyway, it doesn't seem to fit what... Oh, no, I know what it was. He goes on in 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. Now, does he mean simply uh, architecturally? He might, but if he means the glory of the house will be greater than the former in terms of the actual glory of God making itself present in that temple, that didn't happen in the second temple, in Herod's temple. There was no Shekinah glory ever occupying the Holy of Holies in Herod's temple. But in this context, I'm very tempted to see the latter glory of the house including some some tangible, concrete evidence of God manifesting his presence in connection with this temple in a way that was not true in Herod's temple. Even more importantly and more obviously, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I don't think God ever gave granted peace to Israel, and I think the peace that he's talking about is between himself and the people. God never granted peace with Israel during the time of Herod's temple. They were always at enmity with with Yahweh, who wanted to be their God and was constantly reaching out to them to be reconciled to him. But they were never reconciled. He seems to be talking about a time where the temple that's going to be built is actually going to coincide with and be connected with the reconciliation of God with his people. So I don't think this fits Herod's temple. Another obvious thing we need to deal with is, well, maybe it's not a temple at all. Maybe the temple is just figurative for something else. For example, Jesus. Because one could easily see a connection between Jesus bringing in the nations, uh, his glory being greater than the former, him giving peace through Jesus obviously all of that would work just fine but again it it stretches it stretches the language to take it that way the silver is mine and the gold is mine declares the lord of hosts what would that have to do with Jesus the the most natural straightforward way to read this i think is the temple we're talking about we're not comparing apples and oranges a spiritual reconciliation through the man Jesus with a piece of architecture built in the time of Solomon. We're we're comparing apples to apples. We're comparing a a piece of architecture that had the functional um, status of serving as a temple uh, in in comparison with another piece of architecture that has that same function of serving as a temple. That seems to be the comparison that Haggai is clearly and straightforwardly making. So, with that in view, my conclusion is that Haggai is talking about the construction of a third temple one day. Now, interestingly, I suppose the third temple could begin in our history, but again, the most straightforward way to take it is it's built, in any meaningful sense, it gets built after Jesus returns, not not before he returns. Okay, so with that in mind, then let's go to Hebrews. We're in paragraph 90, that's chapter 12, verse 26. Paragraph 90, his voice made the land shake then, but now he is promised, saying, yet once more will I shake not only the land, but also the heavens. Now this, yet once more, refers to the reconstitution of what is shaken. How is it uh, of the reconstitution of what is shaken, of how it is made? That is, I think, of how it is constituted. Such that what is not shaken remains. That's a It's very awkward syntactically. It's really difficult to figure out exactly how he's using his words here. But I think the point that he's making is... When it says, yet once more, he's not unpacking the meaning of yet once more. Yet once more is not exactly problematic. What he's, un, what he's unpacking is the event that Haggai is talking about. So when he says it refers to the reconstitution of what is shaken, he's talking about what, what event did Haggai refer to when he said, one last time, I'm going to do this thing. Well, he was referring to reconstituting what he's going to wipe out, destroy, negate, nullify in order to rebuild it and start over such that what is not shaken remains. So the only thing that's going to remain this day of shaking are are those elements within history, within Israel, in, in particular, within Israel that are compatible with God, his values, and his purposes. Everything else is going to be destroyed. Why is he destroying it? Because God has, Because God's purpose is to build a kingdom that is a fulfillment of all the promises he made starting way back in the time of Abraham. He's going to do what he said he's going to do, but uh, one of the reasons... Okay, but in order to do that, he's going to have to wipe the slate clean so he can start over and he can be the builder and architect and not man. Remember, he referred to that in the last chapter. Abraham was looking for the city whose builder and architect is God. He's not interested in this land the way human beings have built it and created it. He's looking for the one that God is going to build. So, what, what is he referring to? When is this day going to happen that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth when he finally gets around to saying, Okay, enough. You guys have, you guys have not created the kingdom of God. We're going to wipe this out, and I'm going to send my son to build the kingdom of God. That's what he's referring to. Therefore, he says, because we are re- receiving the unshaken kingdom, let us have gratitude in line with which we offer acceptable service to God with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. So remember last week, what, what were we talking about last week? We had uh, the, the, former, the, the present Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem that is going to come the present kingdom and the king or mountain i should say and the and the mountain that is to come mount sinai and mount zion there's the Jerusalem that is still seeking to be right with god by law keeping by their judaism and particularly by their animal sacrifices and he said, that's nothing but, like you see on Mount Sinai itself, it's nothing but fear-producing. You live in fear if that's the way you're, you're going to try to relate to God. But no, we've made a choice by coming to Jesus. We've made a choice that has us join in with this public, joyful celebration of the, the inauguration of God's kingdom the banquet, the feasting, the angels are, uh, are, are feasting, and we're joining them in that celebration. And we have the mediator of a new covenant, and we have the blood of Jesus that sprinkles us and so on. That's what, that's what we've sided with. So then he closes off this section with, what are we looking forward to? What are we awaiting? What is it out there that is going to be the source of this celebration? It's the unshaken kingdom that is going to come. And he's obviously borrowing that, he's coining that term, in effect. God's going to shake the heavens and the earth, but there's something that's going to remain, the unshaken kingdom that the Messiah gives us. Given that that's my inheritance, he says, let us have gratitude in line with which we offer acceptable service to God With reverence and awe. Well, what's acceptable service to God? Uh, The word, the language there is the language of ritual. Um, You served God by going into the temple and offering this kind of offering or another kind of offering or doing this or that or the other thing according to uh, what the rituals of the temple demanded. You were serving God when you did that. Well, how do we serve God? We don't do rituals any longer, nor are we required to do rituals, nor are we even encouraged to do rituals. Rituals have nothing to do with our relationship with God. But there's an analogy to rituals, and that is we, we serve God by offering up to God and giving God what he wants. And what is it he wants? He wants lives that are given over to loving others. Lives that are giving over to dealing justly and truthfully with one another. Lives that are given over to being rightly oriented toward and rightly situated in relationship to our creator, who think rightly about our creator and think rightly about ourselves. So this can be a very mundane, non-religious existence that we live, but nonetheless we are serving God. If we pursue the things that are pleasing to God in every in every aspect of our lives, so that 's what he 's inviting us to do. Uh, we should have gratitude for the reward and the inheritance that God has in store for us, and in lying out of that gratitude, we should serve God in the way that I just described. He says with reverence and awe, I think this is very much like what Paul says in Philippians work out your salvation with fear and trembling different words but i think it's the the same kind of concept why with reverence and awe well he tells us indeed our god is a consuming fire now what's the significance of that people will, or god will destroy people who don't serve him he's a consuming fire who will utterly obliterate and destroy anyone who doesn't give their life over to serving him. So we need to serve him with reverence and awe, recognizing how serious the stakes are. This is, not like just some, this is not just a suggestion of something to do on a weekend. This is the absolute requirement on our lives as human beings. That's what God expects from us, and that's what he's going to have, have from us, and if he doesn't have it from us, He's going to destroy us. So with reverence and awe, we should enter into offering him up an acceptable service. Okay, need to pause there before. Now the next section is an entirely different, going in an entirely different direction. So he's done, he's done with the main exhortation of the, of the final part of the book now. Questions or comments?
0: Hi, Jack. What do you do with the, um, what God says in Haggai to Zerubbabel, that he's going to make him a signet ring yeah. in that day?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's two very real possibilities, and I don't, I don't know how to decide between them. Because Zerubbabel is a son of David, it, it may be a way of, in the person of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel making a promise to the son of david who is to come namely jesus and that he will be the signet ring the other possibility is that zerubbabel as a distinct individual himself is going to have some distinctive role to players to distinctive place i don't know I mean, it could be but i'm more inclined to think that this is basically a promise to jesus thanks mm-hmm. That we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Is that the same thing Paul is saying in Romans twelve one and 2, where he talks about a reasonable service? Uh, are you emphasizing the word reasonable there? Or? Well, service is actually I'm hung on. Yeah, there. the service would be exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, same mm-hmm. word. I, I, I'm going by memory here, but I think it's the same word. And he never, using the reasonableness in twelve one and 2, uh, that is our logical or logikos, or yeah. Just a, it depends on what I, I'm. Yeah, it depends on what he means by logikos. There, mm-hmm. I I think it's a distinct. The way I translate it is, you're ultimately real latreya, your ultimately real service, and the reason I do that is. Given the Greek culture in the background, there there would be all kinds of Greeks who would make a who would make a um, identification between that which is of the mind and that which is eternal and ultimate and final. So it's conceivable to me that part of the field of meaning of the word logikos is uh, of or pertaining to something that is eternal and. Uh, and ultimate, as opposed to simply temporal and corruptible. And he never clearly defines it.
0: No, in fact, I
1: think it's the only place where Logikos itself, is that right? I'm not sure it's used anywhere else in the New Testament. Again, I'm going by memory, so don't trust it. So then, is he defining what he means by an acceptable service with reverence and awe in the following passages, the following... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to argue he's doing more than that, okay. but, but that would certainly be included. Everything that he's going to go on to say now to the end of the letter, if you did that, you would be offering an acceptable service to God. That's true.
0: I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit in uh, verse 27. I'll read it from... NIV that's sitting here? Okay. It says, the words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. That sounds very different from what you're saying, so could you just kind of talk about that? that?
1: Most of our English translations, including the NIV, um, are, are completely oriented to this whole passage differently they think that the distinction is between heaven and earth the things on earth can be shaken but the heaven the things in the heavens cannot be shaken so notice that they they talk about can be shaken that's totally an interpretation of the greek tenses there it's not obvious it's not the only way that you can take it. It it doesn't have to have it doesn't have to pertain to what's possible. Uh, in fact, more straightforwardly, it's shaken or unshaken, shaken or not shaken. And that's the way that I'm taking it. The reason they're taking it in terms of what's possible is because they, they've got this idea of the heavens are eternal, incorruptible, unshakable. And what God is going to do, what God is doing is destroying the earthly and we will inherit the heavenly. Something like that. It's not exactly clear what they're thinking, but uh, something like that. But what I'm arguing is, no, the kingdom that he's going to set, set up is eminently shakeable. If God wanted to shake it, he would shake it. But he's not going to want to shake it because there's no reason to shake it because he's going to build it. And it's going to be pure and it's it's going to be in keeping with his purposes, and it's going to be uh, pleasing to him. The reason he shakes what he shakes is because it's not pleasing to him. It's judgment that's being described. Well, he's not going to judge the millennial kingdom. There won't be any reason to judge the millennial kingdom. That's why it's an unshaken kingdom. I mean, we've seen this this several times throughout Hebrews, going all the way back into into 11, 11. our translations have a tendency to steer us in the direction of the heavenly and the earthly. And I'm saying that's never what's in view. It's the here and the future. That's the distinction. It's the Jerusalem now versus the Jerusalem in the future. It's the land now versus the land in the future. It's the, the kingdom now versus the kingdom in the future. Okay, moving on. Okay, so now we come to the very end, the very last section of the letter. Um, it's going to be a series of exhortations about how we ought to live. Now, what I'm, what I'm going to argue is it's very interesting that each and every one of these, with the possible exception of the second one, and I'm, I'm going to propose how it might fit this pattern, uh, but it's not obvious to me that it fits this pattern, these happen to be exhortations that people under the kind of persecution that the Hebrews are under would be likely to not heed. They, they, aren't, they aren't going to be doing what he's telling them. You need to be doing that. And their fear, their self-protection, uh, the, the strategy that they have for getting along in their life is actually making them avoid Doing the very things, or or some reason for one reason or another, to reject doing the very thing that he's exhorting them to do. So this isn't just, you know, this isn't just Paul at the end going, okay, now let me tell them how they should live their life. You know, what what comes to mind? How, how should people live their lives? No, it's how should my readers be living their lives right now in their situation in the midst of persecution. There's other, other ways they should be living their lives as well that don't make the list. But those are not the kinds of things that they're tempted to forego when they're under persecution. So he's focusing on the things that they are sorely tempted to, to forego, I think. So let's look at the first one. Love of your brother is to persist. Do not forget hospitality, for by this some have entertained divine messengers without knowing it. Remember those bound in prison as being bound with them. Remember those being mistreated as if you yourselves were in their body. Okay. Well, notice he goes right to people in prison and people being mistreated, and I think he means physically mistreated, tortured, scourged, uh, beat up in one way or the other. Why does he immediately go to prison and being beat up? Because that's what's happening that that's the kind of persecution that they are all experiencing and so what is his what is his exhortation love your brothers brothers are not your fellow man brothers are your fellow disciples of Jesus at least at least the way he's using it here i I'm, I'm not i think everywhere in the new testament there may be exceptions to that but almost every, everywhere that comes to mind uh, whenever it talks about loving your brothers, it's not talking about loving your fellow man. That gets talked about elsewhere, and we need to do that too. But, but there's a, a special kind of obligation we have to love our brothers. And that, I think, is what is in view here. When your, when your fellow follower of Jesus gets arrested and put in prison and scourged and beaten up, identify with them. Their body being beaten is your body being beaten. Their being thrown in prison is you being thrown in prison. So empathize with them and so show solidarity with them that you will react accordingly. And what would it be to react accordingly? You would you would bind their wounds. You would visit them in prison. You would bring them food. You would you try to allevi- alleviate their suffering in any way you can because that's your brother and they are in need and you have a particular desire to do good to your brother. Now, why? I mean, what, what is it in the Bible that makes loving your brother different from just loving your enemy, for example? You have simpatico with your brother. You, you share a vision of reality you share the same destiny, you share the same passions, you share the same loves. They, there is so much on the inside of you that binds you together with the inside of them. All outward cultural distinctions between you are nothing by comparison to the, to the cord that binds you from inside to inside. And that kind of simpatico, is, that, that's how we know, one of the ways that we know that we are genuine disciples of Jesus is because we have that simpatico with other disciples of Jesus. If you hate people who love Jesus, what does that say about you? How can you hate people who love Jesus because they love Jesus, and you, you claim to love Jesus? That makes no sense. Well, what he's talking about here is let that, let that otherwise intangible spiritual reality translate into concrete, physical, tangible expression. They have a need, meet it. Their suffering help alleviate their suffering. Now, why wouldn't you do that? Well, in their, in their circumstance, one very obvious reason why you wouldn't do that is because you put a target on your back if you do that. Everybody knows then that you're one of them and having declared yourself to be one of them, you are now a legitimate target for the persecution of the God-hating, Jesus-hating forces within your, within your culture. So Paul recognizes that the tendency is going to be for me to distance myself from my brothers when they get themselves in this kind of trouble. Oop, don't, don't want to... Don't want to be seen with them. And he's saying, no. you got to love your brother. But it might cost me. Well, love always costs you. That's what love is. Love, love is being willing to pay the cost in order to promote the well-being of somebody else. So love of your brother is to persist. keep Keep going. Keep doing it. Do not forget hospitality. Okay, again, hospitality especially in the ancient world here, um, we we see this in other, you see this in the letters of John, you see this in other places, where primarily the role of hospitality among believers was it was a way of supporting the ministry of people who are going around proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing, teaching, instructing, and so on. They can't stay at the local Motel 6 because there ain't none. There are inns in certain places, but the, the most common way to travel is to depend upon, to be utterly reliant upon the hospitality of other, of other people. And particularly within a, a, a community like the believing community, you show hospitality to other believers in order to facilitate their being able to travel at all. But again, you see the problem. You can't show hospitality to them without identifying them, with them and identifying yourself, risk identifying yourself as one of them. So the tendency is going to be, um, don't think I'm going to open up my home anymore to, to those Jesus people who are getting themselves in trouble. Don't think I'm going to do that. And He said, no, keep it up. You've got to persist showing hospitality to your brother. Now, I think when we have the background, what he goes on to say makes more sense. For by this, some have entertained divine messengers without knowing it. He may very well have in mind God showing up for dinner at Abraham's tent, along with two sidekicks, angelic sidekicks, and and they entertain them, they feed them dinner. Uh, He may very well have in mind the angels who went to Lot, uh, and Lot opened up his home to them, <laughs> rather spectacularly to protect them from uh, a mob. Uh, he may very well have that in mind. He wouldn't necessarily have to have that in mind. He may he may rather have in mind something unknown to us that is known to them in their world. But in any case, I, I translate it messengers rather than angels because I don't think he's saying. Show hospitality, because you never know, the guy might be an angel. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is, these, these are itinerant teachers. You're facilitating They're going around to be able to, to proclaim the message. One of the side effects of you just simply loving your brother enough to open up your home to them is, who knows? Maybe through their wisdom and their knowledge and their understanding, they have a message from God for you. you you're, they're not the only ones who may benefit from this relationship. You didn't, you didn't open up your home because you wanted them to teach you, but who knows, unknown to you, it may, it may happen that they uh, have a very important, life-changing, direction-changing message from God for you. So I think he's talking about human beings, not angels, but human beings can be messengers as well. They can be angeloi just as well as a metaphysically different sort of being that we call an angel. We've already really talked about the third sentence there. Let me go at least one more before I open it up. This, This is the difficult one to understand. What is this doing in the list? But he says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now it's not that difficult to know what he's saying, but what, what's difficult to know is why why in this list, why in the midst of persecution are is your is one of your prime exhortations avoid fornication, adultery and and all, all manner of defiling um, human sexuality. I, I have a theory, but a, not a theory. I have a speculation, but it's just a speculation. When we were in, what's the name of the Roman ruins that used to be um, right, right on the south end of the Galilee as you go down the Jordan Valley? The, what's that city there? Yeah, it, it, it used to be Shean, and it had some name at the time of Jesus. It was a, a very Greekish Roman city. Cytopolis or something? I, I can't remember, but... Anyway, it's a well, very well-preserved Roman ruins. And you should have seen the House of Prostitution. I mean, it's just this prominent, prominent part of the city. And our, our guide pointed out how utterly and completely depraved Roman culture was. How completely decadent it was. I mean, along with the vomitoriums and the coliseums and the places of prostitution in every, in every major city. I mean, you, you, I got a very vivid picture of uh, daily life was simply getting on with your business and then stopping in at the house of prostitution and having some fun at the, at the cat house at that, at that point in time. It was just normal. It was given. It was just a part of their civilization, a part of their value system, which is so radically different than a Jewish and Christian value system. Radically different. So I I have to wonder, would you be tempted in order to hide in that culture to conform to the sexual mores of the culture? Come on, Jack, let's go down to the let's go down and see a prostitute. I mean, what am I going to say? If I say no, there's going to be one and only one reason why I say no. Oh, you're one of them. You're one of those Jesus followers, aren't you? I, I expose myself again because my moral values are so strikingly um, out of sync, so completely different, so completely others than theirs. So I, that's my speculation, that it makes it onto this list because Paul knows the temptation. One surefire way to hide is to go along. I remember in college, I I worked in a factory that made concrete sewer pipes. And I worked with some of the most vile human beings I I ever knew. And every break was, uh, was filled with vile talk, jokes, comedy about sex. And they pegged me instantaneously for who I was because I just didn't participate. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't stand up and go, this, uh, this triggers my Jesus-believing sensibilities. You know, I, I didn't make a big deal out of it. I tried to fly under the radar screen as much as I could, but it became absolutely apparent by the fact that I was uncomfortable with what they were doing that I had a different value system. And there's no way in the world I could have, I could have avoided that except by learning to tell dirty jokes and, and go along and you know laugh when they laughed and, uh, and value what they valued and so on. That's the only way I could, have, I could have hidden. So my speculation is that Paul knows that. Paul knows that in this culture, at this time and place, uh, you're going to be tempted to hide by conforming. And look what you're conforming to an utterly corrupt vile depraved view of human sexuality so marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled and i think what he means by that is very simply human sexuality is for is for marriage human sexuality is the language by which a man and a woman declare articulate, celebrate, and enjoy their marital commitment to one another. That's what it's for. And anything that makes it other than that is to defile it. And the word, the language he uses there is uh, is, is at home in the sense of religious uh, ritual, again, religious matters where you are, have pure and impure, well, you have, you have rendered that which otherwise could be sacred. I hesitate to call it that because I don't want to overplay the importance of sexuality, but under, take it with a grain of salt. That which otherwise is sacred and making it not sacred. It's taking that which should be sacred and defiling it, making it impure. Anything that does that is, is in violation of what Paul is exhorting here. Let the marriage, marriage bed be undefiled. And there, there seem to be basically two ways, two general categories of the ways in which we defile the marriage bed. We turn human sexuality into animal sexuality rather than human sexuality. Or, and these are not unrelated to each other, um, or we turn sexuality into a form of recreation period. And either of those two things is to, is, to, is to sabotage the true meaning, significance, and value of, sexu- of human sexuality. I mean, they don't even make a secret of it anymore in our culture. They'll just flat out tell you that all sex is is animals copulating, animals mating, so what's the big deal? Dogs do it, we do it, and so we ought to have the same kind of freedom that Dogs do. That's what the ancient cynic said, but that's that's to completely misunderstand and misconstrue and completely get wrong what human sexuality is. No, it's not what animals do. I ain't no animal. I'm a person, and I'm a, I'm a person who is given a physical body. That's true, but because I'm a person, it's my job to figure out what persons are supposed to do with physical bodies and employ my physical body, my sexuality, accordingly in a manner that's consistent with a person who knows the difference between right and wrong and who desires to do right and not wrong and to to employ my sexuality that way rather than just give myself over to hormones and impulses like the animals do. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Well, just one, one important qualification on that. To be a fornicator is not someone who at some point in their life has committed fornication. To be an adulterer is not someone who at some point in their life has committed adultery. There are, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, adulterers and fornicators cannot inherit the Son of God, and, and such were some of you. The key being, such were some of you. It, it's a matter of what it is we're committed to. Are we what, what it is we are allowing? What it is we are tolerating? What it is we are uh, accepting as acceptable in our lives? If you accept fornication as acceptable in your life, then you're a fornicator. If you accept adultery as acceptable in your life, you're an adulterer. If if we commit sexual sins because, in the weakness of our depravity, we got overwhelmed by, by my sin and I failed, okay, then I failed. Join the club. But that doesn't make you a fornicator or an adulterer. But people who are fornicators or adulterers, Paul says, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Or how does he put it here? God will judge. It's, they, they, they will experience the wrath of God, not the blessing of God. Okay, we're going to finish up Hebrews next week, but we've got a few minutes for any questions or comments. The, the, the biggest scourge on American culture today is pornography. It has just, just completely transformed our culture, and, it, and it's completely messing with the minds of generations of people Giving, telling them this incredibly vicious lie about what sexuality is. And the the most important thing that any of us can do is to uh, get pornography out of my life, have nothing to do with it to the extent that um, I, I run into it, recognize it for what it is. It's a complete fantasy, a myth. It has nothing to do with real men and women, real human beings entering into a relationship together, an, an intimate sexual relationship together. It, it, has, it has nothing to teach us. All it can do is tell us what you would be like if you were an animal. But I don't want to be an animal. And God doesn't want us to be an animal. I, I, want, I want something else. We all should have a desire to be above that and be more than that and be other than that and be different than that. So... Um, in our, in our day and age, the, the thing we really need to do battle with is all the messages we get through the pornography, which is not limited any longer. I mean, it's on TV, it's in uh, major movies. You, everywhere you turn, you confront it in one way or another. It just, it's a scourge on our society and our culture. Okay, we'll finish up next week.